Hello and welcome to our quarterly podcast. I'm Helen Watson, CEO of the UK Wealth Management Business, and I'm joined today by our global investment strategist, Victor Balfour, and one of our co-heads of portfolio management, Hugo K. Procure. As usual, we sit down at the end of the quarter to discuss the last three months of macro, markets and portfolio activity. So, Victor, a tougher quarter for markets, uh, having had a pretty strong uh, first half of the year. Do you want to talk us through the uh, key developments? Yes, it's been a it's been a pretty rocky third quarter for markets. You know, global stocks and bonds were, were both down about two and a half percent in local currency terms this past quarter. Albeit, you know, currency moves had a very big impact. So actually, you know, saw quite a big rally in the dollar, which meant that actually for global stocks and sterling terms, they were actually in positive territory. You know, about half a percent or thereabouts. But, you know, as you allude, Helen, you know, 2023 has been a year of two halves, you know, through to the end of July, you know, stock markets were up nearly a fifth and almost close, in fact, to retracing last year's losses. It's really only been the last couple of months through August and September that stocks have really fallen sharply. Um, and of course, there's been this sort of patchy reversal across other asset classes, so, you know, bonds and gold to gold have echoed the equity market, mm-hmm. um, while, you know, the dollar and oil prices have kind of moved in the, um, in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. In terms of what's been driving this, you know, several developments seem to have been really weighing on sentiment this past quarter. Higher energy prices is one obvious one, but also, you know, the interest rate story. You know, central banks are finally acknowledging this sort of higher for longer narrative. We've also seen that revival in bond yields. And of course, alongside this in the kind of geopolitical sphere has been kind of no less, no less threatening. Um, um, as we've seen it. However, despite these difficulties, you know, there's still a number of kind of constructive developments kind of worth focusing on. You know, tensions between China and the US have thawed a little. Dysfunctional US politics. That's you know, normal. Dysfunctional that's, US it, 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 is, it is normal. But we haven't, of course, seen that shutdown that many mm. people were kind of worrying about, you know, that's sort of been avoided. Um, and of course, you know, importantly, we need to be quite positive about the economic story. You know, growth is holding up. Inflation is in retreat. And of course, that interest rate cycle is kind of approaching its, its end game. Um, I think we also need to remember that for 2023 as a whole, you know, we've travelled a long way and quite quickly. You know, mm-hmm. stock market is still up double digits um, this year. Uh, so, Victor, if inflation is retreating and growth continues, is this the fabled economic soft landing that we've read a lot about in recent months? It's an interesting question. I think, you know, so far, you know, the economic story has been far more resilient than many had expected. You know, recession forecasts were very much the consensus view 12 months ago. That's firmly in the kind of rear view mirror. Um, today. When it comes to the growth story, you know, I think there is a bit of a regional divergence emerging. You know, the picture looks a bit more fragile in places like the Euro area, you know, places like Germany, you know, the global manufacturing downturn is is having a big drag on kind of export tilted economies. But I think we should remember that stagnation is not the same as an economic contraction. Mm -hmm. And of course, set against this, you know, the US is very much pulling ahead. The US consumer keeps spending, you know, underpinned by very resilient labour markets. Um, and we're seeing signs that real wage growth is turning positive. It's been negative for much of the past couple of years, squeezed by higher inflation. And of course, with that, we need to be mindful that demand's holding steady. And of course, better growth raises inflation risk ahead. On that front, you know, I think we're still confident the direction of travel is lower, not higher. You know, if we're looking at inflation rates across the UK, the euro area, they've kind of trended lower this year. The US has been a bit more patchy in recent months, but that's really around oil prices. And we don't think that's going to have a lasting impact. The focus really for us is really on you know, underlying core inflation, you know, which removes energy and food. Um, and this has continued to fall across those major blocks. But I think, you know, looking ahead, and I, I guess to the crux of your question about a soft landing, you know, whether a recession delayed is, is one avoided, 
that's open to debate. We certainly wouldn't discount the possibility, mm. I guess, of some interest rate driven indigestion ahead. But a significant economic downturn, you know, one that would lead to, you know, a big slump in cash flows or profits seems neither imminent nor likely at the moment. You know, for now, growth does continue. Okay, thank you, Victor. I'll come back to you a bit later to kind of go through what you think is in store for us for the next few months. But um, sort of moving on to the portfolios, Hugo, given the backdrop that Victor's just outlined, you know, how did the portfolios fare over the last quarter and where does that leave us for the year? So as usual, these numbers are for the balanced portfolios and their new court fund equivalents. So for sterling portfolios, these were down around half a percent for the quarter and for dollar portfolios were down around 3%. And finally, for the euros, uh, these portfolios were down around 1% for the quarter. So this leaves all of the portfolios up around 6 to 7% for the year. And as usually the case, and as Victor has already pointed out, the differences in performance mainly relate to currency movements. So the dollar had been weak in the first half of the year, but then recovered most of its losses in the third quarter. When we look at the portfolios, Hugo, what have the main performance drivers been? How have the return assets behaved and how have the diversifiers performed? So again, if we take the balanced uh, portfolios as the example, return assets, so the stocks, fell uh, just over 2% in local currency terms over the quarter. And this was slightly ahead of the broader equity market, which fell about 2.5%. The return assets overall this year have outpaced broader world markets. And we, we are happy and perhaps even a little bit surprised by this as market returns this year um, have been driven by a very small number of mega cap stocks. So these are the so-called Magnificent Seven. We used to talk about the fangs. It's now the Magnificent Seven of Alphabet, which is Google, Amazon, Apple, Meta, which is Facebook, Microsoft, Nvidia, which is a chip, the, chip, the chip maker, and Tesla. And Microsoft is the only one of those that's directly held in portfolios. And given that backdrop, what were the biggest contributors to performance? So on the stock front, it was Admiral. Admiral stock was up nearly 17%. As we had expected, claims inflation is now feeding through into higher motor insurance premiums. I got mine the other day. Yes, bad luck. Very bad luck. Um, now, we, we weren't surprised by this. I mean, it was our central expectation. I mean, these, com these companies aren't charities, but the broader market seems to have been. The US cable stocks um, had a better quarter, which is great. So they've been consistently weak and a real drag on performance over the last couple of years. So they started to recover. Mm -hmm. Charter was up 20% and Comcast up 7%. So better progress there. And why was that? Well, we see real value in this space. I mean, there's been nervousness about the impact of so-called fixed wireless, so 5G, and also other companies building out, um, building out fiber networks. One of our team is going to be out at the main cable tech conference in Colorado, okay. and he's going to be kicking the tires and perhaps kicking people in the industry as well, and reassessing the competitive positioning there. Um, finally, online travel agent booking holdings was up another 14%. So this has been one of the strongest performing shares mm. this year. And in fact, more broadly, the travel industry has done well. You know, people have been very eager to travel, yeah. having been you know, locked up during the pandemic. We've also seen this with very strong load factors uh, coming out of Ryanair um, mm -hmm. throughout the course of this year. So those are the things which have done well over the yeah. last quarter. 
in terms of the, the ones that haven't done so well. So the Bears Fund, which is invested in mid-cap US growth names, it has performed better this year, but a couple of their larger holdings lost ground in the third quarter. So Bears fell nearly 17%. Colleagues have spent time with them both in Austin, Texas, which is where they're based, and at an industry trade fair in the US recently, which has highlighted the rigorous primary research that they conduct on their fund holdings. American Express was down 14%. We had reduced this position earlier in the year following some very strong performance. And we don't think it's driven by the underlying business that's still performing in line with our ex expectations. And finally, the rating agencies also were a bit weaker. That's S&P and Moody's. Again, we trimmed these after a strong run and they've also come back a bit. Likewise, no change to our view with these stocks. I mean, they, these remain mm -hmm. amazing businesses with very high barriers to entry. So a little bit of a mixed bag on the return asset side, but nothing sort of dramatic. No. How about the diversifiers? How did they perform? Yes, overall, they were down just under 1%, uh, leading to a contribution at a portfolio level of uh, minus 0.2%. And it was really a very similar picture to the second quarter and for exactly the same reason. And that reason is the steady increase in bond yields across developed markets. So this had the effect of pushing bond prices down and has impacted the longer dated bonds held within portfolios via the investment grade bond fund and the inflation focus fund. And on the flip side of this, because this has been a pretty steady and drawn out process, this has been exactly the kind of trend that the trend followers can exploit. Yeah. So the trend followers have a big short position in, in bonds. So if I, if I put this into numbers, the inflation focus fund fell by 6% over the quarter, but the trend followers were up 3.5%, uh, particularly driven by the two CFM funds managed out of Paris. We only added to these positions in the previous quarter, so it's good to see the performance coming through. Aside from that, the Okura fund again performed well, up 5% for, uh, for the quarter. This is driven by holdings and currency options, where they benefit from the weakness in the yen yet again and also from some equity options, which they bought more recently. But the SABA fund continues to be a drag. So this is down 3% for the quarter and now 10% for the year. And this is because credit spreads continue to be very tight. And frankly, this seems counterintuitive to us, given that the cost of borrowing has been steadily rising, we would expect lower quality corporate issuers to come under some pressure at some point and for some of these spreads to start to widen out. So we are very happy to hold these, the SABA fund. And actually, given the continued tightness in these spreads, we've recently added to the position. So this is definitely a watch this uh, space area of the portfolio. Interesting. So I guess there's lots of kind of moving parts in there, but the key thing would seem to be this continued weakness in bond markets. Victor, can you put these increases in bond yields, i.e. the fall in bond prices, into a bit more context for us? Yes, I mean, it's certainly been very topical this past quarter. I mean, we've seen what we've seen is shifting expectations with regard to interest rates. You know, that, that plateau profile we've been talking about coming into view in money markets uh, and now finally discounting that a bit more in the idea that we're not seeing any meaningful easing into next year. And of course, this is starting to filter into kind of longer dated bond yields. Uh, which has sort of woken up. Um, and so during the quarter, we saw benchmark 10-year bond yields hit fresh cycle highs. Um, so the yield on the 10-year UK gilt, the 10-year US Treasury, 
is hovering around close to four and a half percent at the moment, um, which is the highest we've really seen since, you know, around the time of the, the kind of global financial crisis. Um, and of course, this means year to date stocks are up, you know, 11 percent, double digits, as I mentioned earlier, but bonds are down about one or two percent this year. Um, they're on track now for their third consecutive down year, uh, which is really an unprecedented losing streak. We haven't seen that historically. Mm. And in fact, this is an interesting anecdote here. You know, if you own a broad UK government bond or kind of guilt index over the past three years, that's fallen by about a third. Um, and if you factor in inflation, it's probably halved in real terms. Mm. Wow. So significant, it's amazing, isn't it? Significant losses. Of course, you know, what, can, what seems to be driving this is, is real yields. If you kind of break it down, it's not inflation expectations. You know, mm. bond markets are not really signaling any meaningful inflation um, ahead. Um, the jury is still as to whether this, you know, reflects a, a reappraisal of a kind of long-term growth pros prospects, which, you know, higher yields would imply, or whether technical factors you know, in the supply and demand for bonds are, are perhaps playing a part. Um, it's probably likely a combination of the two. But certainly, I think, given all the pain for bondholders, you know, the starting point today is a relatively interesting one. You know, longer dated UK and US yields, kind of in that four and a half to five percent range of what we might think of as fair, fair value historically. Um, it's certainly now offer the promise of positive real returns um, over the long term from here. So with the promise of positive real returns, UK, uh, which Victor's just talked about, how, how are you responding in the portfolios to those higher yields? So, Helen, as you know well, and I've mentioned in previous podcasts, we spent many years, well over a decade, sitting on the sidelines and owning no longer dated nominal bonds mm -hmm. in, in the portfolios. But then last year, uh, things started to change. Bonds began to sell off and the yields started to rise from nearly nothing, or actually less than nothing in the case of European bonds. In the UK, the process was accelerated by Truss and Kwarteng and that fateful mini-budget. And so we started to take action. And so the, the broad plan is to very gently buy these bonds and add to duration at a portfolio level as yields rise. We have roadmaps for allocating to both inflation-linked bonds and also to conventional bonds. And we will favor one over the other depending on the market's embedded expectations for, for break-even inflation. But this is a gradual process. I mean, having spent a decade on the sidelines, we aren't going to do everything at once, and we're taking the process uh, slowly. So most recently, we bought a few longer-dated dollar and euro bonds for those currency portfolios. And other transactions in the portfolios? So other than the gradual repositioning of the bonds, the, the fixed income exposure, it's been a relatively quiet period for transactions. One thing we did do was add to the Canadian Pacific Kansas City, CPKC for short, uh, position. So the original 1% stake was bought in June. Since that time, uh, two of our team have spent time with the CPKC management team in Kansas City. They came back from this meeting with more confidence, particularly around the medium-term revenue opportunities that will come from the combination of those two railroads. So we've doubled up the position to 2% taking it to a more material size in portfolios. Mm -hmm. This was funded by a reduction in the Lansdowne uh, Developed Markets Fund, not really due to any dramatic change of view, but because the position size had moved up a fair bit since the previous purchase in late uh, 2022. So that's really it, um, okay. aside from the bonds. And Victor, coming back to bonds, I promise, for one <laughs> final time, um, what's the view on markets from here? I mean, have you know, have rising bond yields made equities a bad idea? 
Um, I mean, I think in terms of our thinking at the moment, you know, stock markets have been weak, but not sufficiently so as to suggest that you know the macroeconomic outlook has changed. You know, I think during the last couple of months, you know, the kind of positive growth story has to some extent been subsumed by interest rates. You know, the revival in bond yield, as you sort of touch on there. You know, higher discount rates they imply imply low equity multiples. But interesting, you know, if you're looking at the broad nature of the equity market weakness that we've seen through late summer, this has once again re-emphasized this very concentrated and narrowly led stock market in 2023. I mean, Hugo mentioned the Magnificent Seven earlier. Mm. You know, almost the entirety of the S&P's 12% year to date return comes from those seven large cap US tech-like stocks. You know, it's pretty remarkable. Um, the reality is the median stock has actually little changed if you look at it on price, in price terms this year. Um, which suggests, you know, perhaps the opportunity set is still relatively rich out there. Mm. I think looking ahead for us, you know, the risk of kind of monetary overkill has faded. Um, and of course, expectations for corporate profitability do seem to be stabilizing at relatively healthy levels. Uh, and certainly valuations for the two big asset classes, stocks and bonds, are looking kind of inexpensive on a long term view now. So Hugo, you must be seeing lots of value in the portfolio. Otherwise, I think you would have cut positions. Yes, correct. Um, so where is that value? And your, your, the question you always love is, what is you getting you most excited? First things first, I never thought I'd get excited about None bonds. None of us ever thought you'd get <clears throat> excited about bonds, Hugo. And uh, I do apologise uh, here to my colleagues who actually specialise in this asset class. Um, but I am excited about bonds. So I mean, if, 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 we, if we dial back, our stated aim is to preserve and grow wealth ahead of inflation over the long run. And up until recently, I wouldn't have been looking to bonds as a key part of that jigsaw. Okay, we bought some inflation-linked bonds a few years ago, but that was a toe in the water, and we saw them as being useful for certain market outcomes, but we didn't find them that compelling from a valuation perspective. But suddenly, we can start getting two, two and a half percent real yields on 10-year tips. That's the US inflation-linked bonds. Well, then I have to start paying attention. So, so bonds is, is one area. And more generally, when we think about the portfolios being split into those two main uh, components, the return assets and diversifying assets, the general point always was that we anticipated the vast majority of returns coming from the return assets, with the diversifying assets providing some protection in major market corrections and also functioning as a source of liquidity of cash. This has been changing. So we now see the diversifying side of the portfolios contributing meaningfully to portfolio returns as well. So through cash, bonds, and the interest generated within funds, such as the trend followers or Acura, that's now much, much more than it was, you know, even a year, year or two ago. Even taking things like the trend followers or Acura, you know, some of these diversifying funds which buy things like futures or options, they sit on large bushes. Uh, and that's actually earning something now. And that's now earning some higher rates of interest. So that side of the portfolio is more interesting. Bonds are more interesting. That's why we spent a lot of this podcast uh, talking about, about them. Bonds. <laughs> what else is getting me excited? I think it's, and it comes back to, to what I said earlier and what Victor's been talking about, it's just the fact that market returns have been driven by such a small number of very large stocks. Mm -hmm. And there are other areas of the market where the companies are doing perfectly well, but the market just couldn't care, care less. Mm -hmm. So there's plenty of value to be had. I mean, UK stocks have never recovered from Brexit. And other parts of the world, you know, Southeast Asia or China, are showing some of the cheapest valuations that we've seen for many years. 
The core of the portfolio is and is likely to remain industry-leading businesses in developed markets. But there's a strong case to hold other investments. So, for example, UK mid-caps through Phoenix on Lansdowne or the ASEAN consumer stocks from, from Arbitia in the mix too. And you get a lot of these companies for your money. I like so that. You get a lot of these companies for your money. <laughs> so we're still constructive on growth, uh, which seems to be resilient. Uh, inflation is fading. Uh, bonds are more interesting than they've been for more than a decade. Yep. Um, and we still think there's lots of opportunity in equity markets. Would that be a fair summary, Hugo, Victor? I think so. Sounds like it to me. Yeah. Well, I hope uh, I hope everyone enjoyed that. We've tried to touch on the topics. We have talked about bonds a lot, but we think you might be interested or concerned about that. So um, do please keep sending any questions that you've got to your client advisors, and we will, of course, be happy to discuss any of those questions, speak about them in further detail with you. Podcasts are available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, so if you wish to receive our podcasts as soon as they're released or listen to some of the others, please subscribe to our channel on either of those platforms. And uh, thank you, Hugo. Thank you, Victor. Uh, thank you all for listening. Please note, this audio content is produced by Rothschild & Co. for information purposes only. The podcast is not provided as a solicitation, recommendation or invitation to buy or sell any security, fund or any other banking or investment product. Nothing in this podcast constitutes advice of any sort and no responsibility is accepted in relation to the content accuracy or any reliance on the information provided. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not recover the amount of your original investment. Past performance should not be taken as a guide to future performance. This content should only be used or reproduced with the express written permission of Rothschild & Co.